Lord, thank you that we can utter those words, thank you. And thank you that we can offer them with a grateful heart. For out of a heart that has come to see that all of its brokenness, all of its sin, all of its lostness, all of its hopelessness, nothing in our hands to bring simply to your cross to cling what else could come from our heart other than thank you. And we are thankful that as we've sung these great songs and these great truths, we've got to experience again what it means to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and to teach one another, to remind one another, to rekindle in each other the truths that we know and we believe and we long to just celebrate and rejoice in. Thank you for that experience that different from any time when we are alone by ourselves singing to you. When we gather, we not only sing to you, but we speak to one another in this way. We sing so that we are teaching and reminding each other of these great truths. Thank you for that. And we pray now that as we come to your word, we would treat it as your word. It is you who have handed down long ago these truths unchanging truths, truths that will last forever and ever, that we might feed our souls upon it. And may we, with anticipation and with a hunger and a longing, Lord, say, speak to me. Lord, show me what you want me to see in your word tonight. Let it be tailored and fit just for my life. So not just I can walk out of here, but we together might walk out of this place more and more drawn to the Savior, drawn to be what we are called to be as your church and as your people. And we're going to trust you for all of that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, you know, obviously, last night when Colin asked me to introduce myself, uh, I did a horrible job, I think, because somebody said, well, you said you had a wife and you said you had grandchildren. That must mean you have children, right? (laughs) So absolutely, I do. We are blessed, Pam and I are, to have three uh, adult children, married children, 32, 29, and 28. And um, that's really, if you knew my story, uh, would tell you of a real benediction of God's grace in my own life. For when I was a lost man uh, and I was pursuing my culture and my partying and my hedonism to the max, there were two things that I had said in my mind as a lost man I never wanted, ever. And all that flows out of a lot of the growing up stuff I experienced and all that. And that was, I never want to be married, and I definitely never want to have children. And what a benediction of God's grace to see three blessed children, believers, believing spouses, and now a fifth grandchild on the way to be raised in the way I never understood and experienced. It's like the curse had been broken and things have been turned around. And someday I'll get to share that story with you maybe. And uh, it um, is quite a reminder of, again, as I love to use Charles Spurgeon's word, God wrecked my wild career of sin and brought me to his to his son. What a what a benediction of joy and blessing it is to me. And then somebody else said, "Well, you don't have any books. <laughs> Do you have anything?" <laughs> <laughs> 
And so I probably should have told you this one as well. So, you know, I pastored the church that I uh, was able after leaving EI to go and do a plant there, uh, served there 32 years as the senior pastor, which if I count up and I look through my files and everything I have, I think there's around 5,000 times I've preached in my church, three to four times a week teaching, preaching, training our people. And so if you are interested in that, this is all I have, right? You can go to our website, My Grace Bible Church, and under the sermon tabs, just look for my name and you'll see a selection of things that are videos and audio teachings uh, by books, verse by verse exposition through uh, the book. So that's about all there is about me, all right? That's it right there. And uh, what I want to do tonight is do what I love best, which is to open God's Word and ask you to do that again to our book that we are studying together in Philippians, to chapter 1. And as we do, I just want to quickly remind you of what we began to wade into last night as we talked about this theme of this conference, Praying with Confidence, And it was important for us to kind of wrap our mind around what do we mean when we say we have confidence? Well, synonymous words obviously would be words like, well, I have faith. I have assurance. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm assured and settled in this, right? And often I use the word courage interactively like that. But courage is what you see in someone when they have faith and they have assurance and they have confidence. It's just something that obviously is there. It is not something that we have this confidence or this faith or this assurance because of something in us. As I said, it's always because of someone outside of us. And that is the God of glory that we have been singing about, who has loved us and given his son to be our great redeemer. And we see this kind of courage showing up in Paul's life when last night we looked at how his life, from what seemed to be, from a human perspective, going in the wrong direction. Now, I don't know if that helped you at all. I don't know if you're a person in here who says... I never struggle with that kind of stuff. That just never bothers me thinking my life might be going in the wrong direction. Well, if that's you, praise the Lord. I mean, I'm happy for you. (laughs) But for a lot of us, we find ourselves sometimes echoing the words of Scripture saying, Why, Lord? How long? Oh, Lord. And we find ourselves right at home sometimes with those saints in the Scripture who, when they looked at the way things were going, often wondered, How could this be? How could this be moving forward when it looks like we are going in reverse? And this is a good reminder as we thought about that last night, that whenever life seems to be going in the wrong direction, there's some things we need to do that Paul did. And I think we glean from this. And that is reflect that our faith and our assurance, the confidence that we have is the result of something we have changed. And that is our attitude about our circumstances. It's not hard, really, is it, to feel confident, to feel assured, to feel like you're on top of the world, to use real confident words when everything is going in what you might consider a good direction. But when you choose to say, no, my confidence is in the Lord, it doesn't really matter if it looks like it's going the way I think it should go. I can really choose to look at that confidence that I have, 
which was the first thing there, or second thing, and realized that this really is a chance for me to change my attitude and see those opportunities that God has given to me as just that, opportunities for Him to work through my life. And to really do that in such a way that others are benefiting from what I am going through. That's so very, very important. That Because we don't tend to, right, in the beginning of things going in the wrong direction, tend to think of others. What we tend to do is think only of us and how are we going to get out of this how are we going to get through this when will this be over so i hope maybe last night has got you to start thinking a little bit more about whatever your circumstances are like paul did in this passage and see them as just that an opportunity for you to see how god is working out his purposes and those are opportunities maybe you'd have never had before and he's even using it for the good of others well with that being said I want to come tonight to uh, verses 15 through 18. You you would think that this would be a good place for Paul, having said what he said about where his confidence is and, and what his attitude is and how God is using this to reach the Praetorian guards and people all through Caesar's palace. You would think that would be the place to where, hey, why don't we just put a period there? Because that's really positive and that's really good. But that's not what Paul does. He doesn't put a period there at all. If you look at verse 15, he begins to introduce to them something else he wants them to know. Remember when he started his word to them, he said in verse 12, I want you to know. And he did want them to know where his confidence was and and how he was rejoicing in the fact that God was using those obstacles in his life as opportunities. He did want them to know that. But there's something else he wants them to know beginning in verse 15 through 18. And and before I I read those verses, I want to kind of set the stage for what he kind of wants us to feel and experience and know is going on as well in his life. And it kind of is something we're all familiar with when we come to those seasons of political elections, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I know that as you get close to those elections, there is this nonstop barrage of commercials that come on tearing down the other candidate, right? I mean, I watch those things and I go, oh, my goodness, they need to lock that guy up, right? <laughs> he needs to be in jail. He can't be a politician. Well, maybe that's what he is, right? <laughs> And then the next guy comes on tearing down the other guy, slinging his mud. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't, I can't believe that. Wow. Is there anybody out there that's good at all? They all need to be in jail. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of what it does to me. I don't know about you. But the attempt of all of those commercials are to do one thing, an attempt to erode confidence. They want you to think badly about that person so you will want nothing to do with that person so that you will begin to think, listen, I can't trust them. I can't really have anything to do with them. I want to distance myself as much as I can from them and what they are about. Now, if you look at verses 15 to 18, that's kind of what's going on in the Apostle Paul's life. Notice as I read these verses, this rivalry, this this competition thing that starts to happen, this slandering, this sense of slinging mud and trying to tear down the Apostle Paul right in the midst of his being cuffed in a prison for the last two years. Here's what it says. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy 
and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now, as you look at those verses there, it's obvious that the passage here is about two groups of people. And he wants them to know what's going on in their life. And their potential is that it will distract them from what is most important. In fact, I was so encouraged again, as Colin reminded us of that phrase, it's so important to keep the main thing the main thing. And in the midst of the troubles and the trials that we find ourselves in, it is really easy for us to get distracted. And you will notice as you look at these verses tonight with me in verses 15 and 18, you'll see how Paul responded to those distractions and how we as well should be doing the same if we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Not having our confidence eroded away in a sense of stress overcoming our life. And these verses help us to do that. You know, and show us what it is when we really do that. And the secret here to our not crumbling, the secret to us not caving in in the midst of this kind of competition and rivalry and and words being said and things being talked about the Apostle Paul as it were in his life. It's found right in the middle of verse 16 and it's why I've titled this message God has put me here. Look at what he says in verse 16. I am appointed for. I am appointed for. The ESV says it that way. Your translation may say I I am put here. And that's the key, I believe, to keeping our focus so that we don't get distracted and we don't lose our confidence in the Lord, no matter what's going on around us. And when we are unable to do anything about what is going on out there. So let's spend a few moments and look at that. Again, it would just be helpful for us to see how the context of Paul's situation here is quite a challenge for him. We need to know what the problem is and what is going on and what is not going on here. And there's a contrast, obviously, as we said, of two groups of people. And it has to do with the preaching of the gospel. It says some do this and others do that. That's the contrast that is there. Now, it is important to note what is not going on here. This is not a passage about false teachers. This is not a passage about someone preaching a false gospel. If that was what was going on, if that was happening, Paul would have addressed this in a whole different way. He would have called out those false teachers. He would have reminded the people to watch out for them. He would have warned them. But this is not the problem. The message is not the problem. Believe it or not, these people, these others, some of them are actually preaching you have to repent of your sin. You have to put your faith in Christ. And there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ. It is not a problem of the message. It is a problem of the messenger. It is a problem of the motive here. It is what is driving them and what they are doing in their heart while they are out here preaching the cross and the gospel of Christ. Paul describes it in verse 17 is they don't have pure motives. It's something on the inside that's going on here. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Someone could actually be teaching and preaching the right truth, but be filled with all the wrong motives. All the wrong desires on the inside. 
And this is going to set the context for a potential for the Apostle Paul to have to deal with that and say, how am I going to look at that? How am I going to think about that? What's going to be my response to that? Man, I'm so excited, he would say, that God brought me here to Rome. This is not how I decided to get here or thought I would get here. He brought me here to Rome, but he has put me in this place. The Praetorian guards, they are hearing the message. Caesar's house is hearing the gospel. There are believers there. But there are people out here talking about me. There are people out here trying to make me look bad. That is the context. Their motive is all wrong. You can't say there are false teachers out there and they really need to be condemned and their message needs to be watched out for. What he is saying is these are people who just are driven by the wrong motive and it has the potential to start troubling you and bothering you and eating away at you. Just like those candidates who are trying to tear down that other opponent of theirs. This is really interesting. You would expect that in politics, right? But here it is, among those who are preaching the gospel. So it's not a message. It's not a message issue. It is a motive issue. The text doesn't say why they actually were motivated with all the things they were motivated with. It just tells us here that obviously something about this was showing that they no longer had a motive of love and real care for Paul anymore. And we don't know what happened to really cause it. We could guess at it, but we just don't know. And as I read this passage, I just want to say to you, it does something for me that I hope maybe Scripture has done for you at some point. And that is comforted you in the sense to know that God's people sometimes find themselves in very stressful and difficult situations. Now, I don't know about you. It is a comfort for me to know that whenever I read those kind of things in the Bible, it's not just a story of, hey, this is fabulous. The guards are all hearing the gospel. All of Caesar's house is coming. This is all good, happy, clappy kind of Christianity. This is great. But Paul is not afraid to talk about the bad stuff, the concerning stuff, the troubling stuff. I really appreciate, I really appreciate, as I see in Scripture, just the honesty and the transparency of God and His people as He records it for us. I'm telling you, if I was writing the Bible, I would never put some of those stories in there. What do you mean you're discouraged? What do you mean you fear that you're going to lose your life? You wonder where the Lord was. I love the psalmist and I love the way the psalms are so honest. They're not complaining. They're not angry. They are just going, why? What is going on? Oh, God, why are the wicked prospering? They would say, life seems easy for them. I've, I've served you, but I've washed my hands, it seems, in vain. That's just so honest and the struggle that God's people do find. I don't feel alone when I read David saying, when I am afraid, not if I'm afraid, but when I am afraid, I will trust in you, oh, Lord I get the feeling it's okay to say, in fact, it's biblical to say, life can be hard for us as believers when I hear Paul say, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. In other words, he said, we were thinking we might not make it through this. And when I read the kind of stuff in the Bible, I'm immediately reminded of how unlike it often sounds of, quote, a lot of Christian people. You ask a brother or sister, oh, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Praise the Lord. 
Or you read a missionary letter and there's glowing story after story after story of God's goodness, all of which is good, but you're scratching your head going, man, life has really gone sideways for that brother. Things are turned upside down in their life. What do you mean? Oh, it's all good. Now, I get it. I get it that we don't want to really turn to the whining, complaining kind of way about life and just like, woe is me, gloom, despair, and agony on me, right? We don't want to do that. I get that. And literally, there are some people I don't ever want to ask, how are you doing? Because <laughs> that means, woe is me stories forever and ever and ever. But shouldn't there be some balance in there that the Lord is good? But listen, this is hard. This is difficult. This is a challenge. This is a trouble to my soul. I mean, we tend to want to have what I often refer to as a happy, clappy kind of Christianity. It's hard sometimes to really face the fact that life can be tough and life can be challenging. And we know that. Whatever was going on here, you just look at the words that Paul uses here and you can see what they were trying to do to him to get him to have his confidence eroded while he's chained up in prison. Notice he says some are doing what they're doing out of envy. It's an interesting word there. It refers to not only wanting what someone else has, but actually wishing that person never had it. That's envy. Christendom, the 4th century church leader in one of his discourses, used the same word here for envy when he referred to those who, and this is what he said, plot against one another and gloat over the misfortune of their neighbors. That's what they're thinking for Paul. We just really hope it goes down for him. We hate what he's got, and we hope he loses it all. That's the kind of envy that was going on. It's the same word, by the way, that describes why the chief priest handed Jesus over to death. In Mark 15, it says, Pilate perceived that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Some are doing what they're doing, Paul says out there. They're on their feet trying to tear me down and they're hoping out of envy. Not only do I not get to have what I have, but I hope I lose it all. Some out of strife, he says, or rivalry. That means there's divisions. They're separating people. They're creating arguments among people. They were actually pulling people apart by what they were doing. Maybe they were saying things like this. Say, have you, have you heard about Paul? And maybe even insinuating that the reason Paul was in prison was the result of God's discipline or chastisement for some sin in his life. In short, they were just gossiping about him. He says some are doing it out of selfish ambition. They are just self-seeking, self-pleasing. Others are doing it to think they can cause me stress. I mean, this was an intentional cause of stress they were trying to bring into his life. It's an emotional anguish and a sense of personal shame they hope to heap on him. It literally means they wanted to make his bonds of prison even more painful as they tried to cause stress to his life. And you may be above all that, right? When someone begins to reflect envy, selfishness, rivalry, strife, intentionally wanting to cause you pain. You may be above all of that, but I have a sneaky suspicion that that might just be one of those things that could potentially start eroding your confidence and causing you to wobble a little bit. And Paul is being set up for that. 
in this passage here. That's what is going on. Now, what is his perspective? As we said, he knows those things that are there in verse 17. God has put me here. The suffering, this stress that's potentially there is dealt with by reminding himself this is no accident in the purpose of God. What they are doing out there, as Joseph would say to his brothers, you might mean for evil, God means for my good. That potential stressor there was not something Paul had done to cause this to happen in his life. There's no indication he had done anything to cause this. He's not like the guy that maybe you've heard about who went to lunch one day and he opens his lunchbox and he says, Oh my goodness. He said, It's bologna sandwiches again. I hate bologna sandwiches. I am sick of eating bologna sandwiches. His friend said, Well, man, why don't you tell your wife to make you something different for lunch tomorrow? He said, tell her I make my own bologna sandwiches. (laughs) This is not what Paul's going through. He's not in prison for his own bologna making. He is there because God has put him there. He knows that's why he is there. God put me in this place. And the verb, I love this verb here. It literally means to be destined for this place. This is where God appointed me to be. It's like someone in the military who has been given an official assignment. This is your assignment. Paul looks at it that way and he says, this is my perspective. This is how I look at this. Listen, they might be doing that and that is potentially hurtful and painful and hard and their goal is to bring grief and strife to my life and it could do that. But I reminded myself, God put me here. God put me here. God put me here. All of this created, if you know Paul's story, a very lonely time for the Apostle Paul. There were just a few folks, by the way, after those two years, who actually had anything to do with him. He tells us in his final letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Everybody in Asia has turned away from me. He says, in other words, they've abandoned me. And he goes on to write, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Wow. Can you get this? All that talk, all that slander, all that they were saying about him out there had called people to say, I'm not really sure I want to be on this guy's side. I don't know if I want to have anything to do. So much so that if he someone walked into town and said, where's Paul? They go, Paul who? Paul the apostle where? Onesiphorus had to search for him, had to dig deeply to say, let me figure out where he is because Paul was alone and Paul was lonely. But he knew he was right where God had placed him. I mean, that's hard to imagine. 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul says, Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He knew he was where he needed to be because that's where God had placed him. So that was Paul's challenge. That's what was going on. But he knew that's where God had placed him. Could I just ask you to pause for a moment and think about yourself, where you are, what might be going on around you, what others might be saying about you, what my others might be telling others about you. Have you ever just settled in your heart that you're right where you need to be? You're in the place that God has put you.
that's the real challenge, to come to that place to where you can confidently say that with assurance, without doubt, with the realization that God has done that. That's what Paul did. So what does Paul say? What was his conclusion? Verse 18. What then? What then? Well, here's what that means. That Well, that's what they're doing. That's what's happening. So what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? So what? That's really what it means here. What then? So what? What are you going to do, Paul? He says, it really doesn't matter what they are doing, what they are saying, what they would like to do to me and cause me to feel while I'm here in this prison. So what? My priority is I will rejoice. It really doesn't matter, Paul could say, if I'm loved or if I'm hated. This is God's assignment for me. Now, the thing I want you to remember from this, just as we just basically walk through what's being said here, and we're going to get to some application of this in a second. The thing to remember is not will you ever be criticized, for you will. It's not here for us to remember and to think, will you ever feel the sting of someone's hate? Will you ever feel the pain of lonely Perseverance? Will you ever be the subject of misunderstanding? Will you ever be misrepresented or lied about? That question is not, will those happen? Because they will. It's not all happy, clappy kind of Christianity. It's sometimes hurtful, hard things. The question really is, what will you do when it happens? What will you do? That's always the question. What will you do? It's like when I go into the doctor about something, or you go into the doctor, if he's a good doctor, he's going to say two things. You want to know what's wrong with you, and number two, what are we going to do about it, right? (laughs) That's what you really want to know. What's wrong here? What's going on, and what are we going to do about it? So what is Paul going to do about it? What is going to be his practice? How is this going to apply to us? So here's where I want to try to be as honest and transparent as I can with you. And just kind of pull back a part of my life and the, some story of my life that though you don't need to know the specific details of the story, I found great comfort in just simply walking through what I said to you in a real profound way about three years ago in my life. It was probably one of the greatest and most difficult troubles and struggles I'd ever experienced as a believer. Someone... uh called me up and said to me during this time, so Kevin, I've watched your life for 30 years of ministry, and it appears to me that you have been someone who has been loved and appreciated and treated well and thought so highly of. What does it feel like now to be hated? I've never experienced that in my life, not in ministry. What does it feel like to be slandered? What does it feel like to think that others really don't believe the best about you anymore? Now, just so your mind doesn't go places where it shouldn't go, it was nothing that had to do with uh, financial issues, had nothing to do with sexual issues, had nothing to do with that. It had to do with some believers who were spreading a story about Kevin wouldn't believe or stand up for something. 
And it began to erode and eat at me day and night. I wished I could tell you when that started happening and that started being spread that I just said, so what? (laughs) I wish I could tell you that I did what the Apostle Paul did and just said, it didn't matter. The Lord put me here. But that's not what initially happened at all. What initially happened is I began to lose a lot of sleep. I began to hate to hear the ding of my phone for a text or an email because of the vitriol things that were being sent to me. Questions of integrity, questions of truthfulness, questions of being honest, and that just killed me. It eroded, as it were, for that season of my life, that kind of confidence that I see in the Apostle Paul where he's saying, so what? I will rejoice. So what? I didn't get there immediately. I didn't get there initially. It was really, really a tough time. And I just really struggled through all of that. I lost nights of sleep. My appetite was gone. I even actually feared ever traveling again to any conferences for the potential that I would see those people. I just wanted to avoid it all. And that became, for me, somewhat of this kind of struggle where it's beyond my control. I cannot do anything about it. And yet, I'm getting voices and calls that are saying, is this right? Is this true? Did you do this? Did you say that? That was a quite a struggle. Maybe you've never been there. Maybe you never felt the pain of that and the, and the struggle and the, and the tension that it brings to you when those kind of things happen, when you know they are not true. I am so thankful for the Onesiphoruses that came into my life at that time. My pastors and my elders who looked and vetted out and said, those are not true. That's absolutely a false, slanderous accusation. For my ministry friends around the country and around the world who came to my side to give me great, great encouragement and to say, those are not true. I mean, listen, the Apostle Paul is accused of all kind of things in the Bible that are not true. But those are things that are tools of the enemy to potentially erode and eat away for us. And maybe, maybe for you, maybe this is the message you need to hear from God more than anyone right now. You have your chains. You are misunderstood. Maybe there's dishonor that's being spread. You're abandoned. You feel alone. Maybe you feel like that you are being talked about in ways that are just not true at all. Maybe you've there. Can I encourage you? Don't fall to the trap that is being set there for self-pity and self-defense and self-judgment and bitterness and despair. What you want to do is two things that I think we see in this passage the Apostle Paul did. Here's the first thing. First of all, your confidence must remain in in this. You must choose to, to focus on this. Focus on the ministry God has called you to rather than the motives of others. Why are they doing this to me? Why are they saying that about me? Why is that going on? Listen, if you begin to attach your faith and your focus to that, you will find it eroding and eating you up. It was such a relief when I realized that this trial, this untrue thing that was going on and being said was what God knew was best for me. I mean, that was just like, 
an eye-opener. I mean, I have confessed that. I have said that. I have taught that to people. I believe that. But now I was in the pressure cooker of the moment. And when it finally hit me like, wow, they're actually saying this. They're actually telling people that they're slandering that, spreading that. God, you must really believe this is best for me. This is good for me. That doesn't excuse those folks in Paul's life who were doing all they were doing, those others out there. It didn't excuse anything they were doing, but it changed Paul's whole outlook when he focused on the ministry that God had given him. That Christ, he says in verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. What really matters most is that the work of the gospel is still being done. God is still using us to do the ministry that he has called us to. And what a relief it was for my soul to realize that that trial was no accident. God had put me there. And it began to bring confidence and joy back into my heart again as I just knew it was just best. It wasn't like that time was 99.9% good. It was from God's perspective 100% best. The best thing for me. God had put me there. It could become a distraction for me to focus on the why and the how come of all that. And what was going on, but in the end, I needed to focus on God has called me to this. God has given me ministry, and I need to stay focused on that. Second thing that I learned from this passage when I was thinking through all of that was confidence means you choose to have joy in a person rather than letting your emotions lead you to focus on the problem. Your joy ultimately... Paul is saying, I rejoice. It's an interesting phrase here when he says, yes, I will rejoice. It's one of those terms in the Greek language which means it is a rejoicing of choice. It's not a rejoicing of feelings. There's nothing about it that makes you feel happy and excited. It is painful. It is hard. But it is something you choose to do. I will rejoice. And it's not only one of those verbs in the Greek here where it is something about you choose to do. It's also a future tense in which not only right now, but going forward, I'm going to make up my mind that I will rejoice in Christ. I will rejoice in Him. God put me in this place. My joy is really found in a person not what others may think or what others might not think it really doesn't matter in the end what really matters I was able to get my soul to was right now I can have joy in him and going forward no matter what happens in that story I can in the future have that kind of happiness and joy in him Maybe you've heard this definition of rejoicing and it goes like this. It really reminds me of kind of where I needed to get to. And it goes like this. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart because the king is in residence there. I mean, really, he is in charge and he's right here with me. He is ruling and reigning in all of this. I don't like it. I could run from it. I would just hide from it. I wished it would go away. But when I put that flag of joy up, that rejoicing in him, you are the king. You are in residence here. And that means you're at home and you are in charge and you're doing what you know is good. I am in this place because you have put me here. And that was where my heart began to be happy, even when there were so many not good things happening and and struggles and fears all around me. Joy is in a person. 
This is the person who has loved me. This is the one I wanted to keep reminding myself day in and day out, who laid aside his glory in heaven, who stepped into the world, this world of sinners, of a broken, fallen world. Perfect God, perfect man comes into this world to live a life I could never live, a life of perfection. And then he takes a horrible death in my place so that I could escape the judgment and the wrath that my sin deserved. That's the one I should be happy in. That's the one I should be content in. That's the one who came to take all the shame in my place and die for my sins. He's the one I should have joy in because he rescued me from the just wrath that I deserved. Every time I think of that passage in Matthew and him embracing the cup, I'm telling you what I would expect to happen, what should be right, is he would look at that cup of sin and he would then pass it back to me and say, that's your cup, that's your sin, that is your wrong, Kevin, that's what you deserve. But what he did is said, no, you give me the cup, this is my cup, I'm going to drink it for you. And that is the one who should be giving me incredible joy and incredible happiness, no matter what others might say, no matter what else is going on. He's the one who drank every drop of judgment in my place. And that's what Paul is saying here. My joy is in that Savior, in that person. No matter what other people might say, what other they might do, however they might intend through all the things that Paul said they were doing to make his life even more of a suffering, thinking to cause distress to him, they couldn't take his joy away because it's found in a person. That's what I hope we can find ourselves doing When life seems to go sideways, when it looks like it's going in the wrong direction, and then there are things out of your control with people and others around you that you just can't do anything about, that it doesn't erode or take away your confidence and your joy in Him and Him alone. Can I tell you one other thing that really I'd never experienced in my, at that point, 38 years as a believer you know, the Bible talks about us suffering for Christ, suffering for righteousness sake, right? And I'd experienced many times as a Christian suffering for righteousness sake in the sense that um, someone would call me a name, make fun of me, say you're one of those you know, kind of things like that. I'd experienced that and it was just exciting to me. It was like a real joy almost to me. Just wow, that's great. I get to be identified with him. I get to partake of what he experienced. But in this trial that I just described to you earlier, there was something I had never experienced in my life as part of suffering with and entering into something of the suffering of Christ. And it was this. For the first time in my life, I got a sense, a little taste of what it meant for Jesus to be misrepresented, for Jesus to be misquoted, for Jesus' words to be twisted around and say, he said this when he really didn't say that. And I'll never forget just the happiness that just filled my soul when I said, Lord, I just want to rejoice in you. I want to thank you that I just get a little taste of what you went through when you experience those things. 
And you did that for me. You never said anything wrong. You never misquoted anything. You did it perfectly. And yet your words were twisted. You were misrepresented. Thank you for just the feeling of what you went through for me. Part of entering into the joy and the suffering of the Lord. I can remember it. It was just like yesterday that that seemed so precious and so real to me. And it was just, again, a strong reminder to me of what it really means to say, I'd heard it all my life in this school. I'd learned it in my this school. I'd lived it and practiced it in so many ways. But when something like this, like Paul began to experience, happens, it really deepened in me for the first time, really a kind of joy in Christ I had never known before. Now, I don't know what that is for you, what's going on in your world But I can tell you this, God has put you there. And there's nothing in that circumstance. There's nothing you can go straighten out. There's nothing you can defend. There's nothing you can stand up for that's going to give you ultimate joy. You may think, if I just get this all cleared up and everybody thinks the way I think or sees it the way I see it, it'll all be good. I'll be happy. That will never make you happy. That will never give you joy. What will give you joy is when you can say with the Apostle Paul, So what? It's okay. Because my joy and my confidence is God has put me here in this ministry to do what I'm doing. And God has given me joy in His Son, not in my circumstances, not in anything around me. Well, let me pray with you, and then I want to do something for us tonight. Lord, as we take these few moments, what a great reminder for the transparency and the honesty of what Paul is telling us here, that there are some people who love him, there are some people who speak well of him and and desire out of goodwill to be doing what they are doing. But there are others. There are others. And we all have those others in our world and in our life who really don't have the intent and the desire to be something to encourage or to help or to strengthen. They really want to go against us sometimes. And Lord, we can look at that as something that we want to go away, we wish to go away, and in one sense we know that's just what is naturally going to flow out of our heart. But what you really are ultimately seeking to do in our life is to bring us to the place to where we can, with true joy and true contentment and with absolute confidence, say, You have appointed me for this. You have put me here. And Lord, when we're there in that heart attitude, there is absolutely nothing or no thing, no one who can take that away from us. Help us if we have slipped away from that and somehow thought if we could just get something cleared up or straightened up, it would solve everything for us and restore our joy. Help us to realize that having done all, we're, we just want to stand and stand with trusting you and knowing that you, Lord, are in charge of all things. And I pray that we would, again, through the songs that we sing, through the, the times we think through your word and what's going on here, that we would literally keep finding our joy in Christ. 
that that flag of our heart would be flying high that the king is in resident there and that there are no uh-ohs and there's no uh, I'm sorry words in your vocabulary because you perfectly have brought us to the place we are at so we pray you would help us to just somehow see how to apply that even tonight as we end our time as we close and we pray together and we ask it in Jesus name Amen